cliffcentral.com. It is a full house this morning, and the burning platform is where we get into all the current affairs stories of the moment, and there are enough of those to keep us busy for eight hours. We've got our president delivering his tonight. We have Joel's president who delivered his last night. Uh, we, yeah, it was last night, right? It was, I think. Don't, don't, last night, it was the day before, because I watched it yesterday during guys, the what day. Is, what is this? Joel's as South African as any of us. Come that's on. true. That's, no, it's, <laughs> he can claim both, you see. He's, yeah. he's in the unique position where he can say he's American. I and no one's going to ask him. Another African-American. wants to claim both. <laughs> Uh, but we'll get into that later. That's you too. I, I want to give at least, you know, half an hour of this morning's discussion to Canton, who's been itching to speak about American <laughs> politics. And, and it's something that Joel Wait, is well versed in. I'm going to sit here and like mediate. Up my yeah. air balloon. <laughs> you want to talk about spy balloons? All right. First things first. Joel wants to just weigh in on the conversation we were having before because he couldn't help himself. He came in here just like he says he's got something to say about this men provide gender role stuff that we were talking about before. So I'm going to open the floor. First of all, let me introduce him to you because you need to know who we're talking to here. He's a uh, a friend of the show. He's been on here before. Joel Pollock is South African born writer and attorney living in Los Angeles. Uh, he grew up in suburban Chicago. And uh, graduated from Harvard back in 99. He returned to South Africa as a Rotary Scholar and stayed on to work here as a freelance journalist. He's worked in politics in South Africa. He also earned a master's degree in Jewish studies at the University of Cape Town and returned to the U.S., graduated from Harvard Law School 2009. Then he says he was a, a left-winger at that stage. You were, you were Earlier. Yeah, you, you were a left-winger. Mm-hmm. And then you decided you were not a left-winger, which we can get into, I suppose. I mean, you and I have spoken about this before. Um, and you started working for Breitbart. Yeah. And you have been at Breitbart since 2011. That's right. And you are now the author of over a dozen print and online books, including How Trump Won and The Red November. Both interesting. I've read them both. He's married to labor economist Julia Pollock, who's the daughter of the late Rhoda Kadali. And that's actually why you're in South Africa at the moment. This is the book that... Joel has written. It's about his mother-in-law, and we'll get into that too. So, big agenda on the cards today. Canton Pele, well known to us on the show, and a regular co-host of the Burning Platform, and of course Pumi Mashiko. So, where do we begin, Pumi? We're squeezing like really half a day Shall into we let Joel... an hour. Joel, Joel first. Joel walked in here yeah. hot, about, hot, hot. About. Well, this is such a great program. This is one of the best podcasts anywhere in the world because the dynamic. <laughs> That goes on here between the host and Great the other host. And the, the it's show. unbelievable. I mean, I came in here listening to it in the car and I really wanted to jump into this. And I'm not an expert on this at all, but I have to agree with Gareth that men provide and feel better when we provide. The one proviso I would add is if you're married or living with a woman, whatever, you don't have to necessarily earn more than she does in uh-huh. today's economy, in today's time and whatever. But a woman will actually put up with a lot of failure from a man as long as he's trying to provide there we go yeah as long as right. he's trying as long yeah. as he's trying he yeah. doesn't have to earn more and he right. doesn't have to succeed but but if he's sitting around yeah. yeah i mean there's i think there is a special amount of scorn and hatred from <laughs> well, women towards men who just sit around i want to tell you very briefly this story there was a brief period i was unemployed it was during the recession i was between one thing and another and i had a sort of an intervention from a concerned friend a fellow ex-south african who actually came up to me and said Listen, I'm very happily married. I have a beautiful wife and all that. But I want to just tell you something. Love isn't enough. Yeah? Yeah. 
You That's gotta, right. You got to go and, and and at the yes. time I was interviewing for jobs. So it wasn't I was it wasn't as if I was doing nothing. But I think a good male friend will take you aside and say, "Hey, mm-hmm. let me know how I can help." But you got to do it. You got to get your act together. That's- Absolutely. Canton, <laughs> you anything so to add on that front? No, I'm right there. <laughs> You're on the same Although, page. Although, you know, I'm very happy to be a kept man. Just putting that out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it's good. You, know, you want to get to the point where she's earning you more. See? He's, yeah, he no, he's being sarcastic. Please. No, I listen. I'm at the stage where I ask hey, my. Hey, listen. My, my wife actually does earn more than. Yeah, I. yeah. You you ask your wife for pocket money. That's fine. That. <laughs> and you can make the lunches and take them to school, but in leaps and know. bounds. I mean, sometimes you've earned more than her. Sometimes she's earned more than you. Yeah, but you know. Between you, me, and SARS, so I, I, ah, yeah, okay. I didn't well, know nobody saw me do it. You I, I saved this. I saved this especially for you, Canton, just to start your day off on the right foot. So here's SARS, of course, our revenue people here in South Africa, IRS of South Africa. Uh, business tech COZA reporting from Edward Kisveta, the head of the commission of SARS, says, think long and hard before joining a tax revolt in South Africa. He says, South Africans will do the right thing. And then Kali Creel, who's from Afri Forum, says, Quite rightly, when I pay tax, I am an accomplice to crime by providing loot for the others to steal. An accomplice associates himself wittingly with the commission of the crime by the perpetrator if he knowingly affords the perpetrator the opportunity to steal. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Kali on this. Remember <laughs> what I've said for years, guys? Tax evasion is a crime, but tax avoidance is a moral duty. There we go. Thank you very much. All right, so lots to talk about. Let's start off. Well, uh, we can begin in South Africa. I know Pumi's itching to talk about all the other states of the union and states of the nation. Apparently, John Steenhuisen did one. I didn't know about this, Pums. You, he does you have one notes. every year. They, apparently, they do one every year. You have I, notes. I have not seen one before now. It's called the truth state of the nation and okay. it was it was actually quite well attended there was oh. even it looked quite well attended and okay. they did make mention of d- foreign dignitaries it was in cape town okay um and of course they were hit with load shedding so there was no air con and you see a lot of people fanning themselves i do think they should have maybe hired like battery operated fans though, because yeah. it, it does take away. I, I know that the point that they're trying to make with, <laughs> with having the air cons out and the load shedding happen in the middle of their thing. But I'm sorry, you said battery operated fans that have this picture of tunnies with vibrators. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, guys. It's one of those days. Let's not go there. <laughs> but you, you know what I found? quite fascinating about, and, and I've said this on the show before, here John Steenazen has set up an almost 52-minute conversation, mm-hmm. and he spent 26 of those minutes speaking about his opposition. That is just, you know, as a marketer, as a communications person, that is a serious, like, Hmm. Yeah. Why give that much time? Why give that much airtime to your opposition? We all know the failures that they've got. This is your opportunity to. It's hard though. It's hard. It's hard if you're in a room and there's (laughs) there's a stinking carcass and everybody's about to throw up. It's much. You don't acknowledge the stinking carcass. Acknowledge (laughs) and move on. It's much more powerful to be selling us your solutions. Okay. Then it is to be beating the dead horse. Like we all agree, the guys yeah. have completely fucked up. 
Mm. They've had more than enough time yeah. to to prove what they can do. But for you to just keep beating that drum, yeah. you know, this is your opportunity to hard sell your solution to all the people that you've... And he had quite a lot of people listening. It was all on... Um, it was Facebook Live, I think. Okay. It was on YouTube as well. And, and yet... 24, 26, 26 of his 45 minutes. Right. He spent on, and then I counted the number of times he said ANC versus the number of times he said DA. Again, why give that much airtime to the opposition? What do you think, Canton? Look, this is a particular drum that we've been beating on this show for quite a while. That what's going to get people to the polls in, um, in 24 is going to be people believing in something not yeah. fighting against something. Mm. And and that's uh, if the DA would only speak to the kind of stuff that Chris Pappas does on a regular basis, that in itself would be mm-hmm. enough to actually get people to say, hey, hang on a second. If they can pull off this stuff in Mgeni, then maybe they can do it in the rest of the country and maybe I should give these guys a shot. And Pumi, uh, yeah, I agree with you. And uh, it, it frustrates me. I want to mm. really... Mm. You know, and I, and I, I actually compared it to Herman Mashaba's address. So Herman Mashaba's address was called A New South African Dream, I think. And and he he trotted out all the tropes, right? So my fellow South Africans, <laughs> South African dream we can all believe in. It was very much like uh, the American addresses. Of, but what Herman Mashaba did do was he did acknowledge the failures of the past, mm. but he spent a big time speaking about what what he believes in what his party stands for what his party believes in and and painting a picture of what they would create okay. in South Africa if given the chance and and I think and you know there's a small difference and I see somebody in the comments saying the DA has proven that they can do it in in Cape Town this is my point if they spoke more about it so mm. that the sound bites we see of John Steinhazen, a sound bites that are reinforcing that message, right. you know. And and Herman Mashaba, even though his delivery was dry and and terrible, and you know his his teleprompters were in the wrong place, so he never once looked straight into the camera and and connected with people who are watching this online, right? But the things that he was saying, he was hitting all of the right notes when it comes to communicating. And, and for you, and you what it you're is. not you're not a huge Herman Mashaba fan, so for you to no, say that, and, you're and, giving credits. I mean, even even some <laughs> of the things that that he was speaking about. Unfortunately, Herman Mashaba's speech for me, who was ten years old in 1994, hmm. does not resonate. You know, he spent a lot of time talking about 1994. He spent a lot of time talking about what those heady days were about. And I think for a lot of people today, that's such a long time ago and I wasn't there. I wasn't part of that dream. The the mm. world that I see, the world that I've experienced here in South Africa it's right now, on. completely moved on. And And if you're going to cast forward to something that can be done, don't look back. Just give me that. I think there's a lot of people, and we know this, the median age in South Africa is 27. Yeah. 27. So they weren't so, even there when that 94 dream was had. So, Joel, what do you, what do you make of this? You pay, you pay enough attention to South African politics to know who all these characters are and to have some idea of, of, of what we're talking about, perhaps more informed than most South Africans, I, I hesitate to say. 
But with our state of the nation on today, uh, our poll, by the way, at this stage, people are saying that they, they could care less. They're not going to be watching. We got a poll going on, on YouTube. What do you have to say about this? So this is really fascinating to me because I was in the DA. I was working for Tony Leon as a speechwriter. I used to go to the state of the nation addresses and we used to write Tony's response and that sort of thing. And at that time, the real challenge was to define a different vision from that of the ANC. Tony was very much about creating this choice and defining the DA as the other side of that choice. And I think that was successful to some extent, but I think the big question now from the outside looking at South Africa is can the opposition really present a reasonable alternative, not just in terms of policy, but when you look at what happened in Johannesburg with the mayor and mm-hmm. things falling apart, can, can an opposition coalition actually exist that could govern South Africa in the future? And I think that's a case that the DA has to make to South African voters. In other words, if you trust us with your vote, can we keep things together in a stable way? And if you cannot do it in Johannesburg, the most important economic city in the country, can you do it in the country as a whole? Maybe you can do it in Cape Town and the Western Cape because of other reasons, but I think that's the case that the DA has to make. So as you point out, tell us your vision, but also tell us how you're going to build this alternative and not just in terms of policy, but a lot of it is politics also putting together the coalition of these other interests who may not want to join the DA and be led by John Steenhazen, but who want to be part of this project. And if I can just start putting the plug in for the book, I I promise you this isn't shameless promotion. It's actually a (laughs) connection. So the book wrote a Comrade Kedali, You're Out of Order, is about Rhoda's transition politically, but also what I think people will find interesting about this book is it goes back before 1994 for Rhoda, the, the high point of the anti-apartheid struggle wasn't necessarily 94 when the transition happened, but it was the late 1980s when, as bad as things were, there was this coalition that built to push apartheid out. And so there was a kind of pluralism and tolerance and diversity within that coalition. And it was fun and it was multifaceted and it was cultural and, and and that's what she wanted to see in the new South Africa. And instead there was this conformity, there was the ANC, there was black economic empowerment, which became much more than a policy, but became kind of a, a culture and it stifled dissent and became very politically correct. And now I think there's actually a flourishing, I mean, Gareth's podcast and even just ordinary radio, just driving around. I hear so many more voices being willing to criticize. Rhoda was among the first, but now it seems that people are becoming a lot more bold in what they're willing to say. And that moment that Rhoda used to think about when there was this kind of unity in diversity, if you can find a way to bring that back into the new South Africa and show people you can rebuild that, then I think people will want to follow along. And it's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to know how to do. And yet I think that's the only way to move forward. We had the state of the union. I think it was yesterday morning south africa time i got up right. early to watch it and it was tuesday night in in the states what was interesting i mean it was actually quite a good speech and i'm no fan of joe biden yeah. but it was one of his better speeches because it was optimistic he focused on the things that are going well we have a lot of big problems we have inflation we have chinese spy balloons you know we have a border that doesn't exist but unemployment <laughs> is the lowest it's been since 1969 and i don't think he deserves credit for it the recovery began under trump but whoever you want to give credit to you point to the optimism, you point to moving forward. I really like that. Some, something new that we saw that I liked, but may have a few difficult implications in the future was we saw heckling for the first time. Mm. Yeah. Never actually seen heckling mm. in the State of the Union address. Most people are very polite and they sit on their hands and 
they don't like something, they just don't applaud, but they don't say anything. Listen, that speaker tried oh, to they, shush oh, them. Oh, they, yeah. they rip up the copy oh, they rip the up. Yeah, So yeah. you're right. That, yeah. It started with Pelosi ripping up the speech. Yeah. But now the Republicans were just openly heckling him yeah. when he said things that they felt weren't true. People shouting liar and things like that. Yeah, so that inappropriate yeah. behavior. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, do, you, <laughs> do we really think that parliaments and congresses <laughs> are places of great dignity and respect? I mean, it was the you, Japanese you, parliament that started with open fist fights. Do you remember? And here in, in, in South Africa, we've, we've mostly had a dignified parliament, except when comrades are escorted out yes, in the EFF. Politics and agents. sausage making. Politics and yeah. sausage making better left out of Don't science. you miss the days though when there were actual assassinations on the parliamentary <laughs> I know, was, floor? What, 1952, right? <laughs> Somewhere around there. Offenders and for what? Yeah, guys. Yeah. I mean, you know, those that were was, the days. That was, that was yeah. like days of activity and excitement. Yeah. You know, speaking of which, um, just be careful. Know, just, just to be clear, Canton is not being treasonous or seditious or suggesting that we need assassinations. Now he just said he misses the ones of old. Well, we do Did have I? those. No, we do have second. those. We do have quite a lot. The number of political not in political assassinations, assassinations has been climbing. No, but guys, just to touch months. on what Joel was saying just now, and uh, you've probably seen this whole thing about Jonathan Jensen saying, you know, was. Uh, were you better off under apartheid? Mm. Hey. And uh, you know what fundamentally pisses me off about this is the comparison that we have to make is not whether we were better off under apartheid. The question is whether when we were better off at the point at which corruption was actually in check. And if you go back to 2008, mm -hmm. when our economy was flying, um, we had paid off our entire national debt, um, it was, load shedding was non-existent. We had a surplus for heaven's sake. We, we had, had a surplus. That's what, yes. that's what. Yeah, we got an American here. You guys wouldn't weak. know about a surplus uh, since what? No, uh, no, Joe Biden has printed more money than the Americans have ever printed in history. They just print more money. Double the federal deficit. So you're saying that it's it's fallacious to then say, oh, did you have it better under apartheid? Yeah, the apartheid era comparison is fundamentally flawed. In fact, we had it terribly. The, the Halcyon days are not prior to '94. No, it's actually they're just prior to 2008 and post '94. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you know, if we use that <laughs> kind of as a yardstick, where you know the first thing that uh, that Mbeki did was to actually pay off the national debt, then take the money that used to be going to pay interest to the national debt and put that into social grants, mm -hmm. which then was the single biggest transfer of wealth into the hands of the impoverished in this country. And, but which is absolutely fine. You can actually have things like a basic income grant or a social grant if you are not financing it with debt. You know, as the Norwegians have shown consistently, you have a sovereign wealth fund, you can get away with doing that type of stuff. But nobody talks about those types of solutions right now. No. And that's, you know, the, so the frustration that we have right now, Joel, is not whether we can actually rally people around. The problem that we've got is that there were 11 million people who did not vote in the 2019 mm. elections. So that is the actual issue. If we can mobilize a fraction of those 11 million people to get to the polls, then we can actually conclusively vote the ANC out of power. And this whole question of ragtag coalitions like we have. And it's all they got. Yeah. 11 million is all they yeah. got. So the interesting thing about Rhoda's book, to come back to that, is that she was writing her columns at the very height of her public profile in South Africa during that time when economically things looked like they were going all right. But she was pointing 
to some of the things Mbeki was doing politically, the empowerment deals, the SABC and how it was becoming a tool of the ruling party, all of these things that were stifling dissent. And she said, this is the root of failure in the future. If you don't fix this now, then you'll have problems later. And that's the brilliance of her writing is that she anticipated almost everything that's happening now because she was pointing at the roots of the system then. And Tony Leon actually used to have this great phrase. He quoted from Chekhov, the Russian playwright, mm. basically saying that the leaves of a tree often delight us, but you have to look at the roots. And so at that time, the leaves were quite nice. The economy was doing better and so forth. There were, there was still a lot of problem, many problems with unemployment and crime and so forth. But what, what Mbeki did through a kind of centralization of power mm. within the ANC and drowning out dissenting voices, there was not one ANC member of parliament who stood up against his policy on HIV AIDS, for example, or right. Zimbabwe. I remember that. Absolutely or Zimbabwe. No, yeah, no. no dissent whatsoever. And Rhoda looked at that and said, that's the problem. If nobody is speaking out against this obvious failure, moral failure, economic failure, health failure, then we're in big trouble. In, the in fact, the, the immediate compensation effect of that was Jacob Zuma. It, it was a coalition of the wounded, the people who felt they'd been sidelined and stifled by Mbeki, who eventually elected him. And then, and we know what that led to, mm. right? It was the beginning of a, a huge amount of pain. Pumi's also got some, uh, some profitability. Uh, <laughs> and I don't mean profitability. I mean the ability of a prophet, uh, which Rhoda clearly had in, in that she predicted that we would see the end of Didi Mabuza. We don't need to spend a lot of time talking about him because I don't think a lot of people have anything to say about him. I don't even think he has a lot to say about himself. But he's gone now. Pumi, you predicted this. You said that it won't be long before Paul Mashatile is parachuted into the job. What does a deputy president do? He's the leader of government business. I, I know you said that, but what does that mean? What does it mean? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Because he knows? gets paid uh, quite a lot of money, gets a good office there at the union buildings, blue light brigades. Let's, for the remember, rest of his how life. Did, let's remember how Didi Mabuza ended up in that position. Yes. Because essentially there was a mighty tussle. Um, between Ramaphosa at Nazrek. And because of the fact that everyone was busy paying off votes for the position of president, they forgot to pay off votes for the position of deputy president. And that's how Didi Mabuza ended up being deputy president of the African National Congress. And therefore, he became deputy president of the country as a result. But, you know, I think there's, it's also been a pattern that if you're deputy president, in the first term, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be there in the second term. Yeah. Right. I mean, so we remember who was, uh, Jacob Zuma's first deputy president, don't we? Uh, was not, uh, Pumzilem Lamongluka? No, that was under Tabo Beki. Who was the first deputy president? Under? See, this is astonishing. It was we, a great game. Yeah. We've, we've completely forgotten already. Who? Damned if I can remember now. That's my point. <laughs> oh, so you, you didn't ask in order to trick us into no, not being I'm, able to I'm just, I'm just, I'm just pointing. Okay. No, no, no. It, it'll come to me suddenly. But the point is it becomes <laughs> Look it so, so nonsensical. It, it, it might have been Khalema for, uh, um, um, no, actually it was Khalema. <laughs> it, it actually was Khalema. And I'll tell you why it was Khalema. Because remember that Khalema replaced Becky as president. Yeah. Okay. And then Khalema became deputy president under uh, Zuma. And Khalema okay. did a very noble thing because he was technically entitled at that stage to get two salaries. Uh, and, and he turned down the one salary. You are wrong because mm. Balegambete was there for a little while. Yes. 
that was while Khalima was president. Yes. Then he became president. She continued to serve as deputy for a little bit. Yes. And then Cyril came in. And then Didi Mabuza. No, Cyril came in only. Cyril came in. He was pre- he was deputy president from the twenty sixth of May, twenty fourteen. Yes, I'm talking about the two thousand and nine. Oh, okay, yeah. So that Kalema was deputy president yeah. for two thousand and nine through to two thousand and fourteen. Okay, yeah, but my, but my my point being that the ANC has established a pattern. He's probably the only guy who's ever gone from being president to being deputy president again. No, actually, uh, F.W. de Klerk had that honor. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that that would be correct after yeah. ninety four. Yeah. But you know, going back to this elephant in the room—is it an now, honor? <laughs> Emotion. Well, but going back to the to the elephant in the room, guys. You know, is Stian Hazen right now likely to motivate eleven million people to actually get out of bed and go and vote on election day for him? Mm. But you know, judging from what he was saying in his speech, he—that's not even—and I was disappointed in this because he spoke quite at length the trajectory the DA was on to getting a 30% mm. kind. And I was, and, and the, it, there was on Sunday, I think one of the polls that was released by city press was about how there is now just a 10% difference just in polling in terms of where the ANC stands and where the DA stands. That for me was, was quite sad because I thought to myself, why is that where you are aiming? Why are you not aiming at, 50 or 55 or 60. Why is that? Because when you aim as low as 30, that's still not enough. You're going to be left with the shambles of having to cobble together some kind of coalition, even just to paint a big, bold picture. It was, I was a little well, bit disappointed. Well, what I liked about what Joel said now about an optimistic state of the nation address can do a lot to, it's your only opportunity really as president to lay out the agenda and to make people feel like something good could happen, right? And that's the one of the biggest things a leader can do is give you some hope for the future, give you some big vision you can join in on, which is why we still remember Cyril's lie about building a tech city. Remember? And Tumamina. We we, we bought into it because we were so desperate for hope. And remember when when there's a market for hope and people are desperate. Absolutely. Look, if there's any bright side to what you say about Stephen Hazen's address, and I haven't seen it, it's that we are talking about it at all. In the United States, the worst job in politics is to respond to the president's State of the Union address. When the opposition, in this case the Republicans, pick someone to respond to the president, even if it's Joe Biden, who's not generally a great speaker, if you're picking someone to respond to the president, it's the worst job in politics. You're always upstaged by the president. You can never compete with the pomp and ceremony of Congress. Sure. And usually it only has minefields for the politician who's doing it. it often ends up hurting their careers rather than helping them because they look so small. Bobby Jindal was a governor of Louisiana. <laughs> he, he came on TV for the response and he had this tie that was too big, you know, like when, like looking like a schoolboy, never put a tie on before, and that's all anyone could remember. Or Marco Rubio, who's still active in mm. politics, and Little kept Marco. drinking water. He, he, you know, he just kept every few minutes, and that's all people remember. It's it's a complete nightmare. So this year it was Sarah Huckabee Sanders who gave oh, the response, and she okay. used to be Trump's spokesperson. Mm. Now she is the governor of Arkansas because her father was the governor, Mike, 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 Mike Huckabee. Huckabee, and she gave a speech that was remembered basically for one line. And essentially she said, the choice for American voters is between normal and crazy. And that's actually a pretty good line. So she laid it out and said, look, what's happening in the country is crazy. We've got transgenderism in the schools and we've got 
oil companies being put out of business and a border that doesn't exist and crimes out of control in many cities. That's the crazy. We offer the normal. We offer policing and low taxes and all that stuff. So that was the sort of choice. So with Stian Hazen, I know that having been there behind the scenes, the DA is always very concerned about creating a contrast. And this 30% number, I mean, they want to give a number that's credible so that people won't think they're promising pie in the sky, but they also want to motivate people to think that by voting for the DA, you can win. But then there's the challenge. An ordinary person coming to politics understands that you don't win with 30%. Yeah. So how do you, how do you reach that? I mean, that's, and that's been the problem the DA has been trying to solve for 20 years. Well, can I just touch on the optimistic side of Joe Biden's speech? And uh, I've got a screen grab that I saved from the New York Times who fact-checked Joe Biden's speech. Fact-checking Biden's State of the Union address. The president's speech contained no outright falsehoods, but at times omitted crucial context or exaggerated the facts. And mm. it's absolutely spot on in terms of, uh, of Biden's address. So, <laughs> so one of the things that I want to point out, for example, Joe, that you highlighted that unemployment is, in fact, at the lowest levels ever. There was crucial context that was actually provided by people who drilled down into those figures last week and said the reason why unemployment is at these low levels is that a massive number of Americans have needed to take second and third jobs on just to mm -hmm. be able to keep up with the cost of inflation. There's that, and there's also a problem, a demographic problem. And this goes back to the topic of discussion earlier in the show about men not working. There are many working-age men who've dropped out of the labor force. They don't count in the official unemployment figure because you only count if you've been looking for work. People still looking for work, so right. not discouraged work seekers. So what's happening with men who are not providing, who are not working? Mm -hmm. And we have a massive problem with drugs in the United States right now, fentanyl and drug addiction. He spoke a little bit about that. That's one of his big failures, mm -hmm. and the Republicans heckled him about that because he hasn't even really, never mind the border policy, there's a difference between the parties about how to enforce the border where the drugs are coming across he hasn't even really done a big sort of moral show of let's talk about addiction let's talk about changing our behaviors or supporting those who are struggling he hasn't even really done that but then they'll heckle him about his son surely maybe that's why he doesn't do it no it's, that i mean yeah. that could be the explanation yeah, yeah. But he certainly hasn't used his son as well, an example. Anyway, I mean, the, the last politician, she wasn't even a politician, but we brought up her name earlier when Pumi was comparing. Nancy's war on drugs. Nancy, Nancy Reagan was the last person in kind of society to actually say your drugs are bad, okay? Yeah. I mean, ever since then, it's been just this kind of, well, yeah, they're not so bad. Then they're acceptable. Then we should be allowed to have them all the time and then actively encourage it. Seems yeah, like that. And, and people made fun Slippery of her. Slippery slope argument. Well, people made fun of her. Her slogan was just say no. But right. I was a kid growing up in the 80s and that had an impact on me. And, you know, having someone say that made it easier to make that decision. But there are other reasons as well. There's also this issue of housing being very expensive in big cities. So a lot of young men are saying, well, I'll just live at home. I'll live with my parents yeah. and, and figure that out. They and, never really grow up. And what's happening is marriages are being delayed. The birth rate is plummeting. Women do not want to marry someone who's living at home with mom and dad, understandably also, so. When you can have sex. <laughs> if you're living in your parents' Right, house. And, and, and that's a, statistically Americans are having less sex than before. Yeah. So there's a an effect that on society. That trust my beer. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we have a low unemployment rate, but there is this big problem. And some of it could be the long COVID phenomenon, which people are still debating. But my wife would tell you as a labor economist that an increasing number of Americans are reporting 
that they have trouble seeing, they have trouble focusing mentally, and many people think this could be an effect of COVID over the long run. So people are reporting disabilities that are associated with the long COVID. Again, I, I don't know whether it's a real thing people, or not, but people also have very little self-discipline and after <laughs> COVID probably have a whole lot less self-discipline and it has nothing to do with COVID. It could be, but that's, I mean, look at how everybody's distracted by their phones every five seconds, right? This is, mm. this is part of the problem. It's like, you can't expect someone to actually be paying attention for more than a couple of seconds before they reach for the device. Sorry. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, for those people in Congress, and I mean, some of them... Well, that's why they didn't notice that there were five Chinese balloons over the past several years, <laughs> because they're too busy Whoa. looking down at their devices. Isn't like, that interesting? Up there. So what they said, and, and I, I'd love to hear your comments, all three of you, on this one. That said, is amazing. The Pentagon they, concealed data from the sitting president of the United apparently, States. Apparently. The, wow. So when, wow. when Biden didn't do anything and sat on his hands for a week while the Chinese spy balloon was flying over every sensitive U.S. military installation. And then when he did say, I told them to shoot it down and they didn't listen to me or whatever, and then they did shoot it down, then the Pentagon admits that there were a couple of others of these during the Trump administration that they just dealt with without even bothering to inform the president. Yeah, there was a huge effort by the CIA, the FBI, the Pentagon to conceal information from Trump. There was an internal rebellion against Trump. They just felt this guy's not fit to serve. We're not going to. If that isn't a him. reason to clean up the FBI, Absolutely. CIA and Pentagon, yeah. I don't know what is. Yeah. If you, if you're so not telling the real. president, the swamp is real. It's absolutely wow. Real. Yeah. You're not telling the president that stuff. You are in direct dereliction of duty. You are not a, an elected official in one of these bureaucracies. You are, you are put there often because of merit, hopefully, and, and otherwise because you've worked really hard to get to the job that you're in. And you are still responsible to the political officials who are elected right. to look after you, to, to, to make sure that you're doing a job. They didn't do that. They must be fired. And that's one of the reasons Biden's approval ratings are still so low, even though he's got a successful economy and low unemployment and so forth. People just don't believe that he is makes decisions and he's in charge. You know, I tweeted when this balloon was flying around, Trump may be a prick, but that's how you pop a balloon. You know, <laughs> just a sense that Trump did things. And, and that's why the deep state sort of mobilized mm -hmm. because they didn't want him to do things. Some things he managed to do, but they were very concerned. They hated his adventures with Kim Jong-un in North Korea. They were convinced that this was terrible. It ended up not being terrible. It avoided a nuclear war. Right. They were convinced the embassy in Jerusalem in Israel would have been a disaster causing terrorist attacks. That didn't happen. So Trump was willing to try all these things that were out of the box and that worked most of the time. But the institutions of state that are permanent, that have these employees that have been there for decades, that control the contracts and the policies, they were trying to resist Trump at every opportunity. And people on the left started seeing it more than people sort of in the center left. That's why you have journalists like Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi. These are left-wing journalists who have now documented all the abuses of power by Twitter, by the deep state yeah. and so forth. And they've said, look, we didn't vote for Trump, but this should not happen to any government. Look at, mm. look at how these guys treated the democratically elected president. If they can do this to Trump, they can do this to anybody. And you could see it, you know, they, they were present. Um, a lot of the generals were present at the Sona. You could see it in their body language, mm. you know, that they, they have, they, they, there's a level of, 
antagonism that mm-hmm. they I mean, even Joe Biden even said to them, you can smile, you know, when he, when he started out because Sorry. they were stonewalling. They mm. were sitting out there in the front, very sully, very kind of, <laughs> it, and body language, you, you know, just in terms of, and unfortunately today we're speaking a lot about communication. Body language also goes a long way to telling you the state of mind that a person is in. And just seeing those generals as a wall, I think there were three rows of them just yeah. <laughs> staring him down. <laughs> was, he, and I also noticed that it was the, and I didn't watch the whole State of the Union, but I, I did notice that the same thing Pumi did. And then I saw the Supreme Court justices who also sit right in front of him. So immediately, and I know this, when you're making a speech, mm. you guys all know this as well. The people that you see the most, the people closest to the, to the front, right? And he's got the, <laughs> the generals and he's got the Supreme Court justices. And they are the only two groups of people who do not stand and applaud. Yeah. Regardless, yeah. it's almost like there's a, you know, they understand their job is to be there. They've got to witness this, but they do not have to express a single scintilla of emotion. So some of the justices don't go. They're not allowed to express anything, but it's optional for the justices. They go as a courtesy to the president, but not all nine of them go. So who didn't, did, did Clarence Thomas? He doesn't go. go. He's he doesn't never go, gone. Huh? He's never gone. Clarence Thomas doesn't go. <laughs> Love and, him. And Samuel Alito, one of the other conservative yes. justices, he used to go until Obama criticized the Supreme Court in their presence at the State of the Union, and they're not allowed to respond. And Alito shook his head and he mouthed the word no. And that was a scandal in the newspapers for the week that followed. So he just decided, stuff this, I'm never coming back. So he just mm-hmm. doesn't come back at all. And they feel as if they are trapped. If the president decides to comment on some Supreme Court case, there's nothing yeah. they can do. So the conservative ones tend to stay away. Mm-hmm. The liberal ones, the left-wing ones, they, they tend to go. But I wouldn't go. I mean, if, you, if you're stuck there and you can't respond, you know. Also, can I, can I ask all of you, because we've got these state of the nation, state of the union things going on. Isn't this a whole lot of outdated pageantry from monarchical <laughs> Europe? I mean, it's just such a joke because I know a lot of people were already going after our politicians in this country for the stupid dress up that they do for the state of the nation, which is just the most outrageous. First of all, it's in bad taste. I think that the, the, the media should just not cover it. The media should pay. Yeah. They, we, we don't need, we don't need a red carpet, anything. They but is, just like, is there not a, because people, <laughs> people like this stuff. We know that people have this inbuilt, you know, the, they, te- they tend to like a little bit of pomp and pageantry. I mean, I saw our military, whatever you can call them, a military pr- pretending to uh, know what they were doing, marching through Cape Town, rehearsing for today. Yesterday, there's some videos there. It, ironically, the video I saw was from Instagram account for Mavericks, the strip club that I follow on Instagram. They were they were filming the the, the soldiers marching down the the street there, getting ready for the, the State of the Nation. And you see, you know, everybody stands up and play the you know hail to the chief as the president walks in in America. And I just think a lot of this is it's inappropriate in a democracy. It's fine in a in a monarchy. No, let me offer a different take no, on it, okay? It I mean, effectively, what we have is the state of the, the nation address or state of the union in the case of the U.S. Effectively, you treat your country as a corporation, and this is your annual general meeting where okay. you have your, the chief executive who's basically rolling out what has been the case up until now and what the st- strategy is going to be in the year going forward. And essentially, that's what it needs to be. And then you know, it's generally followed by the budget speech about a week later, which then maps out exactly how the spending priorities are going to go. 
So I think that all of the other stuff that you talked about, Gareth, absolutely spot on. You know, the idea of dressing up for it. And, yeah, and, 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 and frankly, you know, so many of those things that people wear are just such friggin' embarrassments. You know, the history of this speech in the <laughs> States is interesting. Under the U.S. Constitution, the president is required to provide a report to Congress, but there's nothing about a speech. So Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter. That was his, here's my report. There you go. Read it. Goodbye. No, no, no ceremony. He just sent it in, you know. And then for a long time into the 20th century, they used to do it at the end of the year. So it was sort of a year end summary mm. rather than what it is now at the beginning, as you said, of sort of setting the agenda and, and moving forward. But the state of the union in the United States is a way for the president to try to set his policy priorities for the year. And, That's it. you know, it's, it sometimes is a double edged sword. You know, Trump talked about immigration reform in his, uh, State of the Union, in, I think it was 2019 mm -hmm. or 2018. And people watched this overseas. And so that summer we had a surge of migrants to the border because they had watched Trump's speech saying we're going to change the immigration laws and fix this problem finally. So then you had the border overrun by people and that ended the effort to fix the immigration laws. Almost it was self-defeating to sort of yeah. announce we were going to do this. So. Well, well one of the things I, when I paid more attention to this last State of the Union than I've done ever before simply because I was looking to compare what what Biden is doing to what our guys are doing. You know, I've watched lots of all the past, you know, I've watched Reagan's speeches, I've watched. But when I was watching yesterday, one of the things that stood out for me is so much of what Biden was re reporting was also his theme was very much a let's get the job done. You know, let's finish the job is what he kept repeating. Let's finish the job because he also spoke a lot about legislation. He spoke a lot about the policies he's trying to push through. He spoke a lot about what was signed off. He spoke a lot about where they want to go. And that for me um, is actually a very useful tool hmm. for business for uh, people in civic society, because it gives you an insight into where the priorities are. Similarly, you know, I, I used to, with Tabombegi, I used to listen to his State of the Nation. I'd get the speech, I'd highlight all of those areas. Yeah, because because it gives By the you way, Joel, Fumi's the only person who read the uh, the entire reports as they came in from the Zondo Commission. Every <laughs> single day, she had a summary she had something to say about it. She's a good citizen through and through. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's very self-serving, right? Because yeah. it is also about knowing where the spaces are to operate. When you always... work in civic society, when you work in the NGO, NPO space, when you work in communications, all of those things are important because it tells you where they're going. It also tells you where they're sending the budgets. It's, it's also interesting what they leave out. Yeah. So, so Biden said almost nothing about climate change. And when he came into office, it was all about climate change. Mm -hmm. They canceled this he pipeline. He said one thing. Yeah. yeah, one thing. Right. But now energy prices are through the roof. Nobody wants to hear about climate change. You know, in California, my bill for, for gas in, in the, uh, you know, what we use for the stove and for heating and whatever, it's, it's normally about $50 a month. Last month it was 250 mm -hmm. We haven't changed how much we use. It's mm -hmm. just that the price has gone up so much. Mm -hmm. And so people don't want to hear about climate change. Just they're fed up with it. They're paying too much for fuel. They're paying too much for uh, their homes to be heated, too much for electricity. And so um, he leaves that out. He also left out crime, basically. He talked about police and law enforcement, but that's in the context of this debate about race. Many American cities are struggling with crime. And so 
it's definitely a way for the president to highlight the things he thinks are going well for him. He doesn't want you to, oh, absolutely. you know, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the things that Rhoda found fascinating about American politics was that there's this focus on policy and this focus on current events and so forth, but a complete almost reluctance to talk about the broader constitutional issues. People didn't really have a sense of the bigger picture and, and American politics does tend to get bogged down in the details. And, for all of its flaws, South African politics, maybe because it's fairly recently coming out of a democratic transition, South African politics was more conscious of some of the deep constitutional issues that were happening. And, and ordinary South Africans were more aware, not just politicians and pundits on the news. People understood what the Zondo Commission was about, why this was a threat to South African democracy and so forth. And there was more of a consciousness. In the 2020 election, which she observed with great dismay, having become a supporter of Donald Trump, she could not understand why Americans could not count votes. And she came to me one day. We used to trade ideas all the time because she was writing her columns for the South African press and I was working on my stuff for Breitbart. And she would say, wait a minute, you don't have an independent electoral commission? You don't have any kind of yeah. any, anything? That, and I said, no, well, you know, the states handle it. And she just was beside herself mm. that the world's leading democracy <laughs> had no way to count votes and it had to be fought out in the courts and it had to be done in a certain period of time. And it was just chaos. I, I suspect that, you know, 1.6 billion Indians would disagree with that statement about the world's <laughs> leading democracy. Right. <laughs> you know, rightly so, maybe. I mean, you know, yeah, but, but that wrote, so Rhoda was struck by some of these differences and, and she would reflect on them. And she felt Americans didn't understand some of the dangerous territory that some of this was getting into and that she was more conscious. Oh, I of, think they understand it full well. Say some more about that. The Democrats. Yeah. Look, I mean, essentially yeah. the reason why they will insist that you need ID in order to buy a gun, they will insist that you need an ID to drive a car, but in order to vote, no, you don't need an right, ID. Right, right, right. Yeah. Because you're actually trucking these people across the border and you know that they're going to end up voting Democrat because, Hey, the reason why they're there in the first place is because the Democrats are actually going to roll out the red carpet for them. Yeah, you know, your faith in the system is shaken when you have this vote by mail, you know, which we, it's now almost universal. The day you get a second ballot in the mail that's not yours, that's the day you don't believe in the system anymore. You know, uh uh-oh. And that happens a lot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you see this, but okay, so there's a whole lot of stuff going on in American politics that I know Canton is really desperate to talk about this morning. No, actually, you know, we've got like, what, about five minutes left. Yeah. So I actually want to touch on on Cyril tonight. Okay. I I think there's a lot of stuff that people have been talking about. Go on. uh, With regard to Cyril. So the first thing is that people for the longest time have been saying, when is Cyril going to reshuffle his cabinet? (laughs) Now, you might remember that we had a discussion on this show where at, at the beginning of the year, where I said that Cyril is the first president that we've had of the African National Congress who is not accountable to the African National Congress mm-hmm. because of the fact that he is there based on the fact that he had the money to buy the votes to be there, but he's not reliant upon a support base within the African National Congress. Mm-hmm. And the corollary to that is that when people say, when is Cyril going to reshuffle his cabinet? The only reason he would want to reshuffle his cabinet is to surround himself with people who are loyal to him and who are going to carry out his agenda. But he doesn't have people who are loyal to him mm-hmm. and he doesn't have an agenda. <laughs> so this is all pointless. It, it is all pointless. So at the point at which Didi Mabuza says that he's stepping down as deputy president of the country and, and Cyril says, no, hang on a second. Um, 
you know, this is premature and, you know, we've, so everyone is now expecting that there'll be a great reshuffle that's going to happen this evening. I don't believe that there's going to be a great reshuffle. I know there's a lot of expectations. He, he wouldn't use the sonar for that anyway, would he? Well, um, <laughs> what does he in fact use the sonar for apart from being shocked about stuff in general? Losing his iPad every now and then. Yeah. <laughs> But again, you know, going back to, to what tonight. A bumbling, sorry, what a bumbling fool <laughs> this guy's turning out to be. I mean, we we had every every reason for me. You never I found the scorecard. Oh, right. Yeah, but, he, yeah. but he's a bumbling fool that's not accountable. So, you know, people who are saying, for example, that uh, Paul Mashatile is now going to become the deputy president of the country, I don't think that's necessarily a given mm-hmm. okay, because he it doesn't necessarily mean that because Paul is deputy president of the African National Congress, that he now needs to be deputy president of the country. So I think it's it's very likely that you're going to have um, someone who's, uh, um, shall we say, not as potentially divisive because Paul has a power base, mm-hmm. which Cyril doesn't. So I think you're far more likely to see someone like an Enoch Gorongwana or a Ronald Namola now being pushed into the position of mm-hmm. deputy president rather than Paul Mashatile. I can see Paul Mashatila getting a cabinet position, but I don't expect that there is going to be a reshuffle of significance. How, how frightening that he doesn't have a support base and he doesn't have an agenda. I'm still, those, those words that you said are echoing in my head. Now, Pums, with your permission, I'm going to let Joel just give us a, a little preview of the book because we, I did invite you here to, to be a part of the, the burning platform, but I want to talk about this book because we're doing the launch tonight and I mean, it's, it's, it's really comprehensive. First of all, congratulations on writing it. You've done an, an excellent job of even putting, I saw just breezing through it earlier, footnotes on every page. When last <laughs> did you see someone write a biography to that degree of specificity and to leave, you know, all these articles, all of these different uh, reference materials? How long did it take you to write? Well, Rhoda had talked about wanting to write an autobiography for quite some time. So she actually chose the title, Comrade Kadali, You Are Out of Order, because that was her persona within the ANC. And then she was diagnosed with cancer in September 2021. And so we sat down and said, we have to do this right away. And I sat with her for every afternoon and she would talk to me and I'd take notes. She gave me all her files, letters that she had written with friends and family, all of the speeches she had given, all of the files on her organization in Pumalelo, everything she possibly had on the Human Rights Commission. And I produced a draft. I gave it to her. I printed it out. And in between, I left blank pages so she could write things that I'd forgotten and she could make corrections. So she actually went through the entire first draft before she passed away. And it is a story not just about Rhoda. And, of course, she was my mother-in-law, so it was a labor of love in that sense. But it was also a story about South Africa and about the movement of this one highly, highly principled person who was part of the struggle for freedom but became one of the main critics of the new government about how South Africa has moved and changed and what South Africa's future prospects are and what Rhoda believed. If I had to summarize Rhoda's philosophy, it would be a kind of democratic pluralism. She didn't speak in abstract terms about the individual and the state and liberalism versus socialism. What she said was the voter, the the voter has to have a choice. I want to be able to choose between socialists on the left and nationalists on the right because Having a choice is the only thing that allows me to hold the politicians accountable, no matter how much I agree with them. And she was a member of the ANC, but she supported the DA in several local elections and 
national elections, but she would also be very critical of the DA and say, she sounds like, like a typical South African, just by the way, because we all like to do all of those things you just said. We yeah. will vote this way in that election, but that way in another. And many people and who would have, freedom. who would have been, yeah, of course. And that's a good thing, right? Yeah. It's a part of our, our, our burgeoning and, and, and slowly Absolutely. maturing democracy. But I like the fact that she is also representative of that echelon of people who were, they call them stalwarts in South mm-hmm. Africa. You know, that's what we say. And I have no doubt that all of her friends were of the same mind, that these were principled people who at some point decided that because of their principles, they weren't prepared to just go the way of their party, even right. though the party was the thing that sustained so many of them during those very difficult years. It meant that she had intense debates with people and sometimes arguments with friends. You know, Helen Zilla at Rhoda's memorial service said Rhoda could have done anything except a diplomatic career. You know, she was absolutely <laughs> politically incorrect and she was confrontational. And, and that's what people liked about her. People felt that even if they disagreed with her, the fact that somebody was out there creating this debate was good for the country. I think it's, um, it's really worth having a look at this book. And, um, I, I, yeah, obviously we'll, we'll do the launch tonight and it should be available in stores. And, uh, right. I would suggest and that you could get it online as well. And the launch, if you want to come Ga- along. That's is, it, yeah, guys. What if people want to come to the launch? At Exclusive Books Rosebank at six o'clock tonight. So you may miss uh, the beginning of Cyril Ramaphosa's address. You have to watch that oh. afterward, but you can choose between me and Cyril Ramaphosa. I think. Well, don't worry because the, the, it's the across final the road from my office. I might come say hi. Come and say hi, Pums. We would love to see you there, but here's the final poll update as of 7.52 this morning. So maybe a few more votes in here, but how many people are going to watch the president? Well, out of 300 and something votes, 18% said yes. Only 18% are going to wow. watch. That's really bad. Uh, 52% were just no, straight up no. And 30% said, I don't care enough. Sure. So between that 52 and that 30, giving it a nice 72% of people just couldn't care less. So 72% of the people at the book launch this evening, John. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) That's good. That's good for the book launch. It looks like 82. 82. 82. Sorry. Yeah. Bad for the country. Right. Welcome to the book launch. Exclusive books, Rosebank at six o'clock. It'll be a lot of fun. And you know, the best part is the question and answer. So let's get a debate. Yeah, going. that'll yeah. be fun. All right. Thank you all very much. Canton, Pumi. Love the Joel. new studio, guys. Yeah, we still, we still got a, a little bit of work to do in here. Pumi and I arrived this morning and we've had to find out where to switch on the power after a trip and we're putting in soundproofing still. And we t- I only realized after switching that screen behind you off, you look much better now on camera without the glaring light of the screen behind you. You know, it's too late for me at this age. Uh, No, no, we got to do some lighting. There's a lot to do in here. Trust me, we can make you look really great. And for all the people who were listening last week, the coffee coffee has not even marginally improved. I know. And Pumi and I spoke about it for like an hour, the first hour of the show. We'll sort that out too. All right, everybody, have a happy day. We will see you tomorrow at 6 a.m. Cheers. Bye-bye.